0: face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 18 in the policy dialogue series with alumni, staff, faculty and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national and international challenges we face. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. Joining me is fellow alum, Matt Verghese, who is the chief of staff for US Congressman Anthony Brown, who represents Maryland's fourth congressional district. Matt has also served as a senior advisor on the Van Hollen for Senate campaign, as well as political and communications director for the Maryland Democratic Party, and as a senior legislative aide in the Montgomery County government. So he's been in municipal, state and federal politics and policy. So great to see you, Matt. Long time.
0: Absolutely. I'm excited to be here.
1: So could you talk about your
0: background and how you first got
1: interested in public policy?
0: As I was in school, in high school and then in college, you know, my first kind of transformative moment politically was Bush v. Gore I was a a doe-eyed ninth grader freshman in high school, not understanding about what was going on in our country. And then living through the Bush years with 9-11, the Iraq war, Katrina, it was just really telling about you were upset with the direction we were going in. And realizing that how do you bring about some type of change in this country is that you have to actually be part of that change. And it's not just being part of that change in terms of voting and being politically active, It's actually supporting candidates that, you know, support your own values and getting into the arena yourself uh, and doing the grinding work day in and day out to see the change you want, you want to really, you know, occur in this country. I was very lucky that at the right moment and right time, um, I joined the, the fledgling campaign of a little known senator called Barack Obama back in 2007. And the friend who recruited me to that campaign told me it'll be the best Uh, eight months of your life. Uh, I've never done a presidential campaign until that moment. And he thought it'd just be a good ride. We'll talk about our issues. Um, You'll make a great network and that'll pay dividends for you long-term. That eight months became 18 months. And really, I just got a front row seat into a lot of important things, you know, after the great recession, trying to get universal health care to a lot of people. And I think a really important presidency in our country. And it just kind of told me that, you know, you can't be a bystander to these events what's going on in this country around the world needs people like us to be engaged, be involved and to do the blood, sweat and tears to see something actually occur.
1: Well said, we are all responsible of what's happening and we can all do our part. And um, I'm interested in what specific policies were you most interested when you're studying public policy is there a particular sector or topic that uh, you're more more attracted to and working on?
0: Absolutely, and, and it's funny. Like here in Congress, I am almost forced to be a, a generalist. We deal with so much of so many different issues every single week. Like just let alone this month itself, we're going to deal with with gun violence and labor organizing and immigration and you know COVID relief. You know, you have to almost be an expert in so many different areas. In order order to to be successful, but what really caught me when I was studying is that you know, right during the middle of the recession, to understand how dollars and investments really drive government policies was what my focus was on. It's like I think I realized you know, when I was studying for, for my master's, we went through you know the debt ceiling fight where we almost defaulted on the debt here here in the United States for the first time. We saw the government shut down, and you realize that money. And, and the, our concept of the federal budget and the concept about how many resources we have to actually help people drives the policy discussion. And it can, it can be driven towards, oh, we need to cut, we need to save, the debt's too big. Or we, it can be driven towards, we have some real challenges in this country that need us to invest the resources to help our fellow men and women. And I think I realized if you can understand money, you can understand the budget, you can understand you know both... The, the income coming in and the expenditures, you have real power in public policy. So I really focus on that and that got that really gave me my start is that when you understand fiscal conditions and you under, you can understand to where you can find extra pots of money to fund your priorities, uh, you can get things done and nothing kind of moves the needle more than you know when I started out in state government, finding an extra million dollars to fund, you know, the expansion of, you know, homeless benefits or finding $2 million to make sure that we can get, you know, help more people get broadband in the city of Baltimore. And I think understanding, like wrapping my mind around numbers really helped me kind of establish myself as a policy professional.
1: Absolutely. And love to get into the idea of austerity versus government spending and the actual return on investment that you have. And when you start cutting government spending, you're actually going to contract the economy and have a circular effect where the more you cut, the less money that goes into
0: circulation. So it, it generally doesn't work. No, absolutely. And, and it's really funny how you know at the federal level, at the state level, we have a lot of good budget analysts who tell us what things cost, what the trade-offs are. And it's up to our public policy makers to understand, okay, you know, what costs money. And and generally in government, we, we think tax cuts are free. And we think when we make investments, whether it's an infrastructure or education, or just in working families in general, that costs money. Just the concept of where dollars are flowing, or just the concept about like almost a third of government expenditures are done in our tax code by giving breaks and write-offs for different activities. Those tax expenditures are worth hundreds of billions of dollars every year to the United States government, but we don't count that as, as spending. And so, you know, as we look at the challenges and, and especially going through this pandemic, confronting working families in this country and where the need really is in affordable healthcare and making sure we're doing the R&D and, and investment in medical research to talk about infrastructure that we've been talking about, you know, since Eisenhower and we haven't done, done a whole lot of new things on, those things take real investment and those things take resources and we didn't make those choices because there's a real return. There's a real kind of positive externality in terms of every dollar we spent for one of those things. What's the externality towards helping a, 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 a big business keep money offshore? What's the externality when the who has benefited from this pandemic and we see this from the numbers are the people making a whole lot of money? Um, and so when we consider options like a wealth tax, we consider options like how do we expand and make sure that we're spending the right amount of money, we're talking about $2 trillion right now in COVID relief, and we need to do that. And I think you just see how, how far the window has shifted since 2008, since President Obama, where we were arguing about you know, $900 billion back then after the Great Recession was too big. Now we're at $2 trillion. I think we have fought successfully to say that we need the federal government. We need government in general to step up during times of crisis and get things done.
1: Absolutely, and when the market fails, the government's the last protector of the, the people. And Absolutely. there is the return on investment of Apollo program, space program, 10 to one. We got so many spin-off commercial technologies from it. And there's also a penalty if you have an electrical system that doesn't work and it oh. completely collapses, and you have China able to have the cheapest electricity in the world because they're building coal plants uh, every three months, then they're gonna outcompete you in, in your product. So there's a return on investment. I really appreciate you talking about that. I do wanna talk about your work as a chief of staff. A lot of people don't even know how much work that is. How big is your team? And what is, I, I know it's every day is different, but how, how big is your team and what has it been like
0: being a chief of staff? Absolutely. So, like, I, I work for a for member of Congress on the House side. Our teams are, are actually much smaller than people, people imagine. We have about 20 people on, on my staff. You know, half of them work in, in Washington. Half of them work in our district here uh, in Maryland. Um, and really, every day, we have a whole ton of incoming. I think my job as chief of staff is, you know, like, of course, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a counselor. I'm an advisor to my member. You know, I'm probably the last person he talks to. Uh, before he goes and votes when he's considering what bills and initiatives to to kind of put forward but more than anything else and like beyond working for a member directly our goal and the goal that Mr. Brown has always said is that how are we serving our constituents on any given day you know people don't realize that the top priority for us every day are the people who call in who ask about their unemployment, who ask about their social security benefits, who ask you know, why are they in a wait list for the VA and how do you make sure that those constituents are getting the service that they need, number one. Number two though, is that beyond getting them the federal services that, that they deserve and they are owed, is that how are we helping to make their life a little bit better and a little bit easier? And are we using every tool that we have in a congressional office to move that ball forward? And it's not just you know, writing a bill and getting a, a law, law passed. And I can say on that point, and we're very, very proud of our, our, let's say, record, but you can use your influence in so many different ways, leaning on state and county government to make some of those changes, working with business who sometimes have the resources to do a lot more, uh, whether when it comes to workforce development and education or investing in communities, um, leaning on on, on private entities, and generally using your influence to elevate issues that sometimes don't get the recognition that they need. You know, whether it's you know, poor housing and, and moldy housing, people getting kicked out of their homes, uh, people who don't have broadband when we, when we went to full virtual schooling, um, people need an advocate just as much as they need a fighter inside the halls of Congress. And so really my job is to, with the 20 people that we have, with the 24 hours a day that, that we have, what things can we get done and how do we not lose sight of the big picture every day? It's easy to get lost in the churn of Washington and the Hill And sometimes it's just important to just take a step back and make sure that you're being strategic and not losing perspective over what is really, really important. And you're on
1: call 24 hours a day, and I really respect all the work that people do on the Hill. And I know government oftentimes and, and Congress gets a real bad rap, but I think Anthony Brown represents a much more responsive form of representative than uh, a lot of other folks out there. But I, I want to turn the conversation to January 6th and the political violence during that day. I personally was disgusted. I was very angry when I saw what was happening on that day. And I know the media is placing a lot of a lot of emphasis on bipartisanship. And so what is your experience and, and what does bar, bipartisanship look like to you after the political violence of January 6th?
0: Let, let's not be mistaken. like it is the reason why we got to January 6th is because you had the President of the United States at that time, Donald Trump, uh, people around him, his friends in media, his friends in business, his friends in you know all across his country, spreading a big lie. And I say a lie because we know it is categorically false that this election was stolen that there was rampant fraud and and when you have the the leader of our country endorsing that that opinion we should not be surprised that his supporters and people who who love him trust him and, and like you know will do anything for him you know act in in that manner because they they truly believe that something was, was taken away from them even though we know there's no basis in fact and so I think we saw what happened on, on January 6th in terms of when you have a leader who's so unhinged, who cares more about their own selfish political power than what is right for this country. We've had presidents lose before. And we, we've had presidents who show the class and dignity that they needed because they put the country first. And I think we, we had an occupant of the White House for the last four years who put himself first. And the the result of that behavior and that selfishness we saw on January sixth, where you literally had Americans attack their own government uh, to overturn the will of the American people. But that being said, you know it is easy to say that oh, the solution to to our ills as a country, and President Biden says this is that we have to come together, we have to be united, that we have to think about what unites us rather than divides us. I'm all with that. But I think you know. Very rarely in this country are there clear rights and wrongs. I think we all come to this with the sense that we know the right answer and we have to figure out what is the pathway to get something done. And unfortunately, I think we you have a one side in Washington who is more focused on, you know, social media, the attention going viral, rather than thinking about what are the policies and objectives that we can be pursuing to help the American people. You talk about COVID relief, whether it's it's vaccinations or helping people in small businesses that are struggling, what is their their solution? What is their plan? It's easy to say no to something. And so is bipartisanship trying to convince someone who doesn't want to work with you to work with you? Or is bipartisanship trying to find those members on both sides of the aisle who are willing to actually have a, a constructive dialogue and conversation about, how do we make life better for the American people? And I think we saw after January 6th is that the real test is right now, all the governing is being done by one side. We need to find willing partners on the other side. And unfortunately, we didn't see it. You know, the COVID relief bill passed through the House with not one Republican in support. And what was in that bill? Money for families, money for rent, rent relief, money to go to, to states and localities so we don't fire teachers and firefighters and first responders, you know, money for unemployment benefits. You tell me something in that bill that, again, the polls tell us 70% of the American people's support was in the American Rescue Plan, and we got zero Republican votes. Um, at some point, you, you you had to stop trying to you know find willing partners and go with the people that, that, that you have.
1: And talk to the American people, because the vast majority want action and need help that you the, the Democrats are actually trying to address. And... Uh, I know we're very short on time. So in closing, from your perch on Capitol Hill, where do you see opportunity and hope?
0: It is hard to, to do my job if you didn't wake up every day optimistic. If you didn't wake up every day hopeful about what the future holds, um, not only for, for yourself and your family, but the, the country that, we're, that, we're, that we all love. I'm optimistic because with President Biden, with Vice President Harris, I think we have a, a team in the White House that is so laser focused on not only defeating this virus, getting us out of the pandemic, but, but restoring faith in government for the American people. The American people want government that works. They want a government that, re- that is responsive to their needs and is responsive to how they are suffering right now. And I think we, you have a, a leadership team and with their allies in Congress, in terms of that they're so focused on getting stuff done that that the time for talk and endless debate is behind us. And they want to see real practical results. Way too many problems in this country have been ignored for far too long. You know, you you mentioned infrastructure or immigration or how do we stop gun violence? Like we spend way too long in Washington and state capitals around, around our country talking about the problems that we see and not doing anything about them. I think going through the recession, going through this pandemic, going through this economic crisis that we're in right now has shown us that the way that you restore faith in government, the way that you bring people together is by showing that government's on their side and that we're willing to do the hard work in order to uplift families and to put them on a path so that their tomorrows are better, that they can wake up in the morning and be hopeful. And I see that work right now. It's easy to say that every day is long, every day you know, is long hours, and there's a lot of things, things to get done. But what we're doing that because we see a small window to really show that we understand what's going on in this country as public policymakers, as staff, and that we're going to do something about it. That we're not going to be kind of, you know, you know like just ignore what's going on around us or sit in our bubbles and just like continue just to litigate this on cable news. We, I think President Biden, Vice President Harris, congressional Democrats know that, you know, we have to get, you know, I, I was about to say shit done, but frankly, we did get shit done. And understand that, you know, if we don't do it now, it is hard to go back to the American people and say, give us another try, give us another chance. Um, and so I think what, what we get done in the next 100 days, at the end of this year, will really be consequential about the trajectory of this country coming out of the pandemic, coming back to hopefully a normal, and also like, what is the future we're leaving for our kids and for our grandkids? Uh, no grandkids here, but like we're always thinking about that 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 next generation. And if we don't make the investments right now, and we don't start to think about that next pandemic, that next crisis, and say how do we make sure that there isn't that much suffering next time around, we haven't learned anything. And so I think I'm focused on the future. I'm optimistic about the leaders that we have, and I'm I'm hopeful that we we, we can get real meaningful policy done in the next next in you know, a couple months